Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, I will soon be moving to an area that I just discovered has not one, but two Serbian Orthodox monasteries. What are Pretty the cool. odds? <laughs> what are the odds? So you're obviously going to pick up Serbian now. I might. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that I mean, information. I just thought that was absurd. Okay. All right. Well, I just heard orthodox out of your mouth, and I instantly assumed you were joining the priesthood. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know how okay, they would look, on, look upon Tipsy Tolstoy. My guess is not well. <laughs> mm, okay, yeah, you make a strong argument there. That's yeah. fair. Well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana, and I've apparently reached the age where my younger coworkers will text me, and we'll start off texts. Hey, Cameron, as the resident adult... Uh, can you give me advice on X, and in today's case, advice on car accidents? So that's a fun new development for me. What advice did you give trying not to get into car accidents? <laughs> well, the advice I gave was uh, make sure you have their contact info, but it was mm. probably a little late for that when I was texting yeah. uh, after assessing the damage. So Sure, sure. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. This <laughs> is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and drink or two. This week, we are... Marching forward through part three of Stalingrad, we've done the first two parts. If you've, you know, you've probably listened to those. It'd be a little strange if you just came in for part three. But hey, if you did, welcome. We're going to be going along. It's going to be a 10-parter. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, absolutely. We thought, what do our fans crave? Do they crave, based on views, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky? Yes. Will we give them Tolstoy and Dostoevsky? Absolutely not. No. We give you 10 parts on Stalingrad. That's what we promise. <laughs> we didn't promise this. We just said we're going to do it. Oh, that's right. It's really more of a threat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More of yeah. a hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, okay. Well, I will say everyone and their mother calls Grossman uh, Soviet Tolst Tolstoy. My mom is, is calling me every day to tell me that. It's crazy. <laughs> Her mother, too. Uh, yeah, it's exactly. very bizarre. <laughs> yeah somehow i've been like getting calls from the soviet writers union and mm -hmm. when i ask them where mm -hmm. they're calling from they refuse to say but they just kind of whisper soviet tolstoy yeah. into the receiver yeah, and then seven days and <laughs> mm -hmm. then they hang up yeah Which but, i have um, an issue with but we can talk about <laughs> it when we get to that part it's simultaneously an issue and the funny commentary on the fact that people were definitely saying that to grossman when he was alive yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i just i guess i thought it was a more <laughs> profound comment uh, made by people who were smarter than me right no it turns out i am in fact smarter than everyone haha <laughs> i've returned <laughs> yet again <laughs> for a moment matt thought maybe someone else out there no. had more insight and mm -hmm. then he realized no. no in fact they don't they don't i'm coming for you russian <laughs> literature reddit beware <laughs> um and before we get into talking about today's context and reading, which of course will be from parts 35 to parts 52, Matt, I gotta ask you, mm -hmm. uh, I know it's we're recording in the morning again, because I guess theme of Stalingrad is also recording in the morning. What are you drinking? I am drinking espresso because it's 1 p.m. my time, and it's been many, many days straight that I've been consuming alcohol because people have been visiting, and it's summer, and sure. uh, my job is fake. Uh, my job being PhD student and part-time podcast host, which sure. are neither of those are real things. All I have is liquor in the house now. And I was looking and I was like, do I pour myself a fat glass of whiskey at 1 p.m.? And I said, yes. 
Yes. Uh, and then I just remembered the kind of uh, heartburn I was having going to bed last night. And I was like, oh, God, maybe I'll just do coffee and not do this to myself. So, long story short. At least you go, go to a slightly less acidic beverage. No, I don't think I will. <laughs> That's uh, fair. That's fair. Yeah, I get it when I make a string of bad choices sometimes. So... <laughs> It's my body telling me to not do that. And then I and then I usually right. don't listen, so. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Take that body. <laughs> what are you drinking? Today I am drinking. I think I've actually had this on the podcast before. It is a dark cherry hard cider by Locust Cider, which is a slightly as they describe it off dry apple and cherry mix for cider, which is pretty good. Pretty that good. That sounds delicious. Good way to set off the morning. Oh, it's really good. It almost like feels weirdly like um a rosé, and especially a sweet rosé which feels like a good way to kick off the morning. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's 11 o'clock my time, so. Yeah. All right, brother. Pretty cool. Well. Uh, yeah, so. That's Stalingrad. Here we go. So for this week's context, we're going to continue on with our life story of Vasily Grossman. I know previously I talked about just splitting up into two parts, but as we've been prepping this more, I'm increasingly realizing that two parts is maybe not enough to cover his life. Uh, last time we went for 20 minutes and we shouldn't do that every time because that's making these episodes way too long uh so instead of doing it in two parts i'm just gonna say it's gonna happen over some number of parts uh today we'll be covering uh grossman in the early war probably up until stalingrad maybe through some of stalingrad uh, because there's so much material here um i've been drawing heavily on uh, the book i've been mentioning vasily grossman in the soviet century by alexander popoff but for this week i've also been pulling on vasily grossman a writer at war a soviet journalist with the red army 1941 through 1945 uh, which was edited and translated by anthony bivor and uh, luba vinogradova both of them are excellent pieces to pick up if you're interested in the subject uh, but before we get into talking about world war ii let's talk about more depressing stuff and get back to the book list this week, I wanted to recommend the uh, autobiography, or I don't know if that's technically the, the correct term. Um, it's it's a, uh, maybe a memoir. Uh, it's called A Woman in Berlin. Uh, it's published, I think it's still published as anonymous, but in, in this was written soon after World War II, uh, but it was revealed in 2003 to be written by German journalist Marta Hillers. Essentially what it is, is it's a diary of the eight weeks following the Soviet capture of Berlin, and it's written by a, 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 not a Berliner, but a woman who has moved to Berlin, and the ordeals of living in the city, uh, in the destruction, in the relative lawlessness, especially the mass amount of sexual assault and rape of uh, German women in the city, uh, her own experiences of having to find a sort of protector among Soviet officers as something that happened to many women. It was first released actually in English in 1954, uh, and then it was later translated into Dutch, Italian, Danish, Swedish, Norwegian, Spanish, and Japanese, uh, but it wouldn't actually uh, be published in Germany until 1959. It was not well received. It was actually somewhat, as someone described it, reviled in Germany. I mean, it's definitely it's not an easy read. It's well, it's a, it's a biography of the war, and it's a no biographies of the war this this period are, are a happy one, but this one is especially uh, one that is a perspective uh, I don't think otherwise in terms of like eyewitness accounts, uh, not one that I've actually seen otherwise, and I'm not certain there's other popularly published accounts of of women and specifically in berlin in this era uh but definitely it's it's um i think worthwhile reading so we left off last time with nazi germany's invasion of the soviet union in 1941 
when this happened, uh, things are going, like we've said, relatively well for Grossman. And so this, well, it's, it's hard to say if this was would be a shock to people or not. I'm sure that there is actually, and this is something I need to look into, uh, um, exactly how surprised people were. You know, naturally, uh, Stalin, well, maybe not naturally, Stalin, of course, was quite surprised, which maybe you should have been giving how much given how much uh, intelligence there was put in front of him, essentially saying, no, the Germans are planning to invade. Uh, however, for among the general public, um, it should be noted that a, a lot of more unfavorable news about the Nazis was suppressed in Soviet news due to the uh, need to create a favorable uh, relationship. So it's harder to tell exactly what people thought. I'm sure that there has been some work on that, though. So don't take this as, as, as we don't know, rather, I haven't done that research for this particular segment. Um, although, as a side note, the suppression of uh, not unfavorable uh, news about the Nazis, especially their anti-Semitic policies, actually meant uh, a lot of the, the occupied territories, and keep in mind, when Nazi Germany uh, enters the Soviet Union, they're, they're largely unprepared, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a sweep, so they take a great deal of territory very quickly. So in this territory that was taken, most people there were actually relatively uninformed on... Uh, Nazi racial attitudes, which would be, as you might imagine, quite problematic for a, a number of people. So in late in July, um, in, in the same month, Grossman, despite his health, it's noted that although he's only in his like mid-30s, the uh, there's his neighbors call him uncle. Uh, there, he seems to be much older than he is, and so he volunteers to uh, as a correspondent. And it should be noted that actually he was rejected the first time around, and it actually took some cajoling to get him there. His editor, David Ortenberg, who published under the name uh, Vadimov uh, in Krasnaya Zvezda, actually had to fight to get Grossman onto, into uh, frontline reporting. He knows him from, from Stepan Kolchugin, and in, uh, in his writings later on, he recalls, after hearing that Grossman has been, asked, has been asking to be sent to the front, he says, Vasily Grossman, he, he says upon being told, uh, I've never met him, but I know Stepan Kolchugin. Please send him to Krasnaya Zvezda. Uh, and it said back to him, yes, but he has never served in the army. He knows nothing about it. Would he fit in at Krasnaya Zvezda? That's all right, I said, trying to persuade them. He knows about people's souls. In yeah, an accurate statement. That is how Grossman writes. So Grossman would be conscripted into uh, the Red Army in order to be able to write for the newspaper, although there were some problems. He was initially given the rank of private because he couldn't he couldn't be given the rank of, of officer because he wasn't a party member uh, but also if you had to wear a private's uniform he'd be spending all of his time just saluting superior officers because you know literally everyone at ranks privates uh, so they gave him the rank of quartermaster which actually was true for a number of other writers ortberg notes that the green tabs worn by quartermasters or in this place the uh, the writers who were uh, at the rank of quartermaster it gave them trouble because the the same tabs were my medics so they were often mistaken for for something else and ideally you don't want to find a writer when you need a medic on a war zone so after enlisting grossman would be sent to the front uh, and he set him apart from many of his other fellow correspondents by getting out and really talking to people and being out there and really wanting to be on the front lines and even as they're as they're in and at this point they're in U ukraine or at least grossman's in ukraine he noticed uh, uh, actually like a lot of uh, reluctance to leave before the german advance to take a line from popoff's book in fact for many ukrainians stalin's collectivization and famine were only too memorable and they awaited the germans as liberators women were whitewashing their huts as a holiday grossman observed they look at us with challenge in their eyes it's easter 
Ukrainian women folk mistrusted Soviet stories of German atrocities. The old woman said quietly, We've seen what's been, we'll see what comes. We've seen what's been, we'll see what comes is a phrase that makes an appearance in Stalingrad at several points. Now keep in mind for these people who are seem to be awaiting the German advance, keep in mind the, the combination of the Holomador is relatively recent, which Grossman himself had, had witnessed some of the after effects of uh, at the same time. Like we mentioned earlier, a lot of the racial attitudes of the Nazis were not well uh, publicized in Soviet media due to the, up to that point, uh, non-aggression pact that the two parties had had. But the Germans are just keep pushing on. So Grossman, despite being on the front, is always kind of retreating with the army. Um, and in a kind of another scene from the book, actually Grossman took from his life, as they are retreating from the town of Oral, Grossman actually convinces the fellow writers he's with to visit Yasna Platyana, which is Tolstoy's estate. You might recall that um, Krimov, Nikolai Krimov, uh, while also retreating, takes some time to go to Yasna Platyana. Uh, while at the scene, Grossman thought much of War and Peace, much in the same way that Nikolai Krimov would Upon uh, upon looking at Yasna Polyana while he goes and visits it in Stalingrad, uh, begins to kind of fade between his reality and the reality of uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. And at this time, it was really difficult to write for for Grossman because the army, uh, the Army Gazette, the Krasnaya Zvezda, they wanted uh, examples of heroism. Well, all Grossman and his fellow writers were seeing was was well, chaos. Uh, it was retreat. It was all kinds of things going on. It was people being left behind. Uh, and of course, Grossman would portray much of this in his writing, which was not always favorably received, but there are a lot of people who are willing to go out and kind of stick their necks out, especially as editor Ordenberg, who would fight to keep things that they did not want in, in uh, writing, for example. And this is much later. Uh, Grossman would write, I think I want to say this is from an article in 1943. Grossman would write about uh, a Jewish commissar kind of bleeding out because the reality was for many people, they were, they were being killed. This is at the Battle of Kursk, which is already an incredibly bloody battle. Um, and that line, for two reasons, because of the the uh, Jewish name of the man Grossman mentions bleeding out, and also just the portrayal of Soviet officers dying was not well received by censors. So Ortenberg, Grossman's uh, editor, actually had to go out on a limb to fight for that uh, inclusion, or the inclusion of that line. So it was. It's it's difficult at this time. Olga and her two sons would relocate east, and at the same time, Grossman would begin to write *The People Immortal*, which is one of the first books written about the war. That's notable for the fact that it was. It had contained a great sense of verisimilitude. Uh, when it would finally be published, it would be you know, absolutely devoured by the editors and, and published in 18 straight installments in um, in Soviet military magazines. It was it was very popular. But we'll get more to that later. From 1941. Things go very badly for uh, the, the the Soviet Union. They've lost a great deal of territory. The only upside is in the winter of 1941 when the the, uh, the Wehrmacht tries to take uh, Moscow unsuccessfully. And for a brief time, the Soviet army pushes them back into the spring of 1942. After some time on the offensive, they are pushed back again by a, uh, a Wehrmacht offensive in, in the late spring of 1942, which would eventually push the uh, fighting line back to Stalingrad. So late in 1942, in the winter, Grossman would be dispatched to the southwestern front to cover the operations of the 38th Army, which is southeast of Kharkov. Um, at this time, they are being pushed back to uh, Stalingrad. Uh, this is, I have this in my notes. Unfortunately, I don't quite remember where this was written down by Grossman, but uh, when reflecting on this time, Grossman would write or say, 
How many of them, referring to the people, civilians, soldiers, etc., were forgotten in the unforgettable time? Um, if you have ever seen in Eastern Europe a kind of memorial to World War II, you might have seen the phrase, which translates to in English, uh, no one is forgotten and nothing is forgotten. However, uh, as... Uh, However, as Grossman's notes, in fact, many people were forgotten. In this case, this is maybe, I think this is a reference to um, Grossman's shock that actually at this time the Red Army had no burial units. Uh, so in, in battles where there are great many, many uh, uh, dead, uh, without, unless there were their own friends there to bury them, oftentimes the bodies were left there. After spending a great amount of time on the front and also developing bronchitis from flying in open plains over the course of that winter, uh, Grossman would ask uh, for leave to go take two months to write a novel as well as to go see his uh, his family, Olga and, and her two sons, and, who are in, in Chistopol at this time. Again, it should be noted that, that Grossman really was a frontline reporter. He was out with the troops. He'd spend days with them, even at one point spending some number of days with a sniper. I think this is later on in Stalingrad. Um, and he notes that there's a difference between frontline reporters and HQ reporters. And actually, HQ reporters are a lot better liked by their editors because they're always near a cable and they're near the center of information. So they get all the big high level details that the editors like to hear, whereas the field reporters are hard to get a hold of sometimes or they don't always send things back through a cable because they don't aren't quite done with the story. They're still listening to it. Um, and so despite not really being the more favored reporter, Grossman uh, did feel a great sense of import about uh, about the work of, of capturing individual lives. Uh, so uh, on his way to Chistopol, uh, actually, interestingly enough, um, after he gets, gets to Kazan, he's robbed twice and actually ends up having to walk three days from Kazan to Chistopol uh, because all his documents and food and the gifts he's brought have been, he's been robbed and, and does not have a way to get there. Um, so really dedicated to getting back. Well, not back. I guess he didn't live there before, but getting to his family and getting to his book. In, in Chistopol, uh, he worked at an incredible pace. He, he had basically two books to, two months to write this book. And he would read the chapters of the new novel to local writers almost daily, all of whom praise his work highly. Uh, Popoff notes uh, that Grossman believed they, the local writers, liked it, not because his work was so good, but because the state of contemporary prose was extremely bad. In his novel, The People Immortal, Grossman would depict the events of 1941, especially with an eye towards kind of boosting morale to the for the individual soldier. Uh, he would compare Red Army soldiers to kind of the revolutionaries of um, of the, the Civil War. Uh, and it, the novel really stood out for its focus on not just the broad of, you know, Soviet Union, but of the individual shold, uh, soldier, uh, as well as Grossman's knowledge of how war will actually happened and he it was it was noted that he was really what really stood out was his ability to portray a broad panorama of events, uh, which remains true in Stalingrad as as we see. And a, a great number of the stories in The People Immortal are also drawn from real things that Grossman either experienced or heard from other people. And, and funnily enough, sometimes these things happen so one to one that even the subjects of the stories would actually find out about it later on. And this is kind of a funny like, twist of history. Um, Grossman, one of the stories of the war he told was of uh, a major Babijanian. Um, and in 1941, in September, uh, at the Bryansk Front, Grossman learned about this uh, major Babijanian who led the 395th Rifle Regiment, which fought uh, on their own, basically, to slow down the advance of 
um, Guderian's second panzer group. Uh, they, although they were vastly outnumbered, they were covering the rest of the army's withdrawal, and most of them ended up perishing. Grossman wanted to write about the regiment, but was told that Babajanian had been killed, so... Grossman ended up writing this story into his novel, uh, leaving the commander's name unchanged because, again, he believes he's dead. Uh, but actually, in 1944, during the liberation of Ukraine, uh, Grossman would actually meet Babajanian, uh, who had actually survived and read the novel and apparently found it quite amusing that he had been killed prematurely in fiction. Going back to what I said earlier about the Red Army having no funeral teams, let me read an exact quote from Popoff on this. Grossman wanted the nation to know its heroes who fought with great courage. Most of them died unknown. At the start of the war, entire divisions were wiped out, and soldiers remained in the fields and forests where they fell. In 1941, Grossman was struck by the fact that the Red Army had no funeral teams. Thousands of soldiers, to whom Russia owed its salvation, were left unburied. Grossman saw occasional makeshift signs. Names written in ink were gradually washed away by snow and rain. In his articles in his next novel, For a Just Cause, which we are currently reading under the title Stalingrad, he would write about the need to remember the fallen. But at this time, he's, of course, working on The People Immortal, which largely about human stories, and his editor loved it. They published it all in Stalin's without cutting it. It was without cutting almost anything. It was read extremely widely. Um, and in a letter, Grossman expressed his father feeling overjoyed. He's been he's had another literary success, but his loneliness of being on the front line without his family and his desire to get everyone together and find out what, what happened to his mother is overshadowing all of that. In the face of all this, the German war machine would approach Stalingrad. I don't think I need to tell you why Stalingrad's important, because we're already three episodes into a series in the book Stalingrad, uh, but keep in mind that it goes from July 1942 to uh, February 1943, the siege of Stalingrad. So Grossman would arrive in late August. And uh, Grossman, as was his habit, he'd spend much time in the city going on missions with soldiers. Um, and, and it should be noted, this is pretty remarkable to him. He had overcome a great many phobias in order, in order to do that. Um, in peacetime, he was afraid of taking public transit and was afraid of being out in public. Uh, so to go from that to taking frontline assignments, that's quite a drastic change. His justification, or at least his reasoning, uh, is found in, in one of his diaries when he writes, In order to write about the Stalingrad battle, one needs to be there, on the Volga's right bank, among those who are fighting in the ruins, by the shorelines. Unless I'd go there, I'd have no moral right to tell the story of Stalingrad's defenders. Around the same time, tragedy strikes the family when Olga's older son was killed in a military training accident. They were working with what they believed to be a, a, a dummy shell. In fact, someone had accidentally given them a, a live shell, which would explode and kill a number of the trainees, including Olga's older son. This would cause a rift between Olga and Grossman, as he was not entirely able to connect with her on that, and that grief, maybe in part because of how much tragedy he was witnessing every day. Um, it just... It was a lot for him. He was, he was spending every single day knee-deep in in tragedy and seeing families torn apart. So Grossman carries on in Stalingrad, and he is inspired by this event. He writes to Olga, What I can see here can indeed inspire the world's admiration. The world has never known such courage, such stamina. One needs to bow down to the people who sacrifice their lives with such simplicity in fierce battles that go without respite day and night. These are harsh and sublime days. I'll never forget them as long as I live. It seems to me that I've never felt so deeply as I do now. After about three months in the city in, in, in December, Grossman would ask his editor for some leave wanting to visit Moscow, and he'd be granted leave and would leave on New Year's Eve, only a month before the Soviet victory. 
Although you should have been the the journalist dispatched back to cover the uh, the victory in Stalingrad. Instead, another journalist, Konstantin Simonov, would receive the honor of reporting on the near victory days and and post victory days, uh, which it's been suggested or at least Popov suggests because Simonov was a favored uh, journalist of Stalin's, so he was sort of given the honor of covering that period. Before Grossman do- goes, though, uh, he writes on some of one of his experiences listening to Beethoven in a, a bombed-out house, which is a theme he'll expand into his later work. Certainly, if you read his short story, The Sistine Madonna, this theme is, is very present. Um, this, the place of art in warfare and in the human soul. Uh, and he would write, These words, this simple and ingenious music by Beethoven, sounded indescribably powerful here. Perhaps it gave me one of my biggest impressions of the war. For in war, an individual knows many extreme and bitter emotions. He knows hatred and heartache. He knows grief and fear, love, pity and revenge. But people in war are rarely visited with sadness. And here, as never before, I rejoiced at the great power of genuine art, that soldiers who face death in this ruined building they have defended from the fascists for three months, listen to Beethoven's song with a solemnity of people attending a church service. Following Stalingrad, uh, this great sense of unity would unfortunately crumble. Uh, Grossman himself would write on this in 1943, later or later in the year, I should say, it, Stalingrad, of course, the siege of Stalingrad ends in, in February of 1943, uh, that the generals who wouldn't once been so together, now we're concerned with more, well, altogether more human things. Uh, he would write in his journal, dissatisfaction, ambition, insufficient awards, hatred of anyone who had received greater awards, hatred of the press. They spoke of the film Stalingrad and Cursed, not a single word about the fallen men, about memorials, about immortalizing the memory of those who never came back. Everyone is only talking about themselves and their achievements. So this this sense of unity, this sense of, as Grossman describes it, sublime unity, which is so present during Stalingrad, uh, falls away after the conflict. And uh, once the, like we've mentioned before, post-Stalingrad, the war goes in the Soviet Union's favor, and they just keep getting victory after victory, and they begin the liberation of conquered territories, uh, which, of course, will lead Grossman towards much of his, I will say, hardest-to-read writing, um, in service to the Jewish anti-fascist committee's investigations into the Holocaust. But we'll learn more about that next week. So as we start part 35, we rejoin well, Victor, sort of a little mixed up in the timeline. Recall that last time, Victor and Pastayev are on a train to Moscow to carry out some plans. Now we're going a little bit more into Victor Strom's background. Of course, Victor is the husband of Ludmila, who is the oldest of Alexandra's children. And we start with Victor's mother, Anna Semyonova. Thought we were going to let you out of the family tree, did you? <laughs> Not today. <laughs> you thought you were. You thought you were out of the fuck barrel. <laughs> Jokes on you. The fuck barrel is this entire book. <laughs> no, you're right in it, and we closed the lid, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and keep in mind that if you've been confused about Ludmilla's family, uh, she opines that Victor's family is way more confusing than hers. So pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool. So um, as you mentioned last time, Anna Semyonova is pretty involved in Victor's life, although she lives far away. She's always sending him care packages and letters. And even after college, this continues where every week they're writing each other. A Grossman, just such a wonderful character writer, includes this bit, which hit a little, little bit too close to home. She, referring to Anna Semyonova, did not correspond with Ludmilla, but she always asked after her health and asked Victor to pass on her greetings. 
And Victor, as people often do, failed to pass on these greetings and, without even mentioning it to Ludmilla, wrote in every letter, Ludmilla sends her greetings. This is hilarious. <laughs> I do this exact same thing. Obviously not you know, through letters because right. uh, I can't read or write. But it, <laughs> it, it, it's just, I, I highlighted this exact passage. I was like, wow, yeah. absolute banger way to start the chapter. <laughs> Victor, just like me for real. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. So we, we hear more about the relationship, but they lose contact after the war begins because Anna Semyonova is out west and he tells himself that she's okay and that she's fine, but he, of course, has no contact with her and doesn't actually know. On the way to Moscow, Victor is thinking while well, he's on the train, it's, you know, a fair bit of a journey from Kazan to Moscow. I don't have the exact mileage in front of me right now, but it takes a while. And then he recalls Maximov, who was mentioned briefly in the last part as someone his daughter had seen, which upset him a little bit because Maximov was someone he used to work with. It was, in fact, a biochemist who worked briefly in Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia back when the Soviets, uh, back when the Nazis were still uh, respecting the non-aggression pact. And he recalls uh, Maximov going on about his experiences in Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. And he, bad reports, uh, he, he tells the others when he gets back, in science, fascism now rules. Its theories are terrifying, and tomorrow these theories will become practice. They already have become practice. People talk seriously about sterilization and eugenics. One doctor told me that the mentally ill and the tubercular are being murdered. People's hearts and minds are going dark. Um, a lot of the, the scientists argue about that. Some of them say, hey, you know, they are allies. Just, yeah, you have to overlook that. Others say, well, it's not really their business. But Victor tells Maximoff that he should write. We should, we should write a journal about it and publish about it which never really comes to anything, except in the days before the war when Victor and Ludmilla are at their dacha waiting for their family to arrive, uh, Maximov comes by and gives a Victor like an 80-page manuscript and tells him not to read it until he's really ready to sit down, you know, all at once. If your friends don't do this, I mean, are they really friends? Are they re which part? Receiving your 80-page manuscript or giving you an 80-page manuscript? No, just, just dropping a big fat 80-page manuscript saying I don't like fascism on your desk and being like, get ready, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> get ready to read. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think this is the first part, though, that really gets into the fascism is bad part of it. Right. <laughs> Which is uh, <laughs> obvious. But I, I feel like there's a lot of passages on it in this part specifically. Yeah, yeah. It, it starts with this and then there's like a lot of nature imagery. It's interesting right i mean it very it actually this is very explicit this book is not it's not super subtle speaking of nature imagery maximoff is walking around the dacha's garden says if everyone had two little apple trees like this i believe there'd be no need for war fascism would be impotent these knobby little branches are honest arms and hands they could save the world from war savagery and disaster so we have a we've got a lot of uh, fascism versus nature imagery throughout mm -hmm. this this part Although he leaves the manuscript there, when the next day or so, the war breaks out and the manuscript is forgotten as the family evacuates. So now at this point, Victor is, we return to the train and Victor kind of thinks of the character of the people uh, around him and the various kind of vignettes in the same way that uh, Grossman has always been concerned and talked often about the people in the war, uh, the civilians, the soldiers, the individual stories who wouldn't be told. Uh, a lot of this chapter and the book as a whole is giving each of these people like little space you know characters if you read grossman's writings which i've been i've been getting really into it i've, I've recently bought um a writer at war which is a collection by anthony bivor and luba vinogradova 
which are collections of his writings when he was um, at war reporting with the Red Army, as well as uh, The Road, which is a collection of short stories put together by Robert Chandler. And you can see a lot of times when he, he writes about things and uh, about seeing someone on a train or, or a small scene. And I feel like I've been seeing a lot of relevant, maybe not it was like that exact incident that caused it in the book, but something, a scene that you could have seen, like talking about a woman being lost in a train station or trying to find her children, which he writes about and you see in the book and you could think, Maybe he saw this a couple times and it stuck with him. I love watching you morph into a Grossman scholar practically overnight. <laughs> it was telling that I was I'm on vacation right now. Like yesterday I was hanging out at Berkeley and all the things I could have been doing, I, I was just sitting down and reading the hell of Treblinka. So that's a sign of a mentally stable person right there. <laughs> <laughs> Happy vacation to me. <laughs> Only the most stable would do that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So as we return to the real time and uh, on the train, Victor also tells himself that his deep, deepest, darkest fears about his mother are wrong, that she's still alive. They have arrived. They check into their hotel. Although there's not much food, there's always plenty of vodka. And it's noted that people will come from all around to just fill up their canteens with vodka because the restaurant always have it, has it in stock. Now, Pastayev, it should be noted, during the day, he's kind of this indomitable force. He's always talking to people. He's always doing something. He's the center of everything. Even... When he's unhappy with the rooms, he calls the manager and Victor's like, it's, it's the wartime. No one's going to do anything for us. The manager immediately comes and starts like giving them everything they need and, you know, kind of going way out of his way to help them out. But although during the day, he's got that kind of force at night, as they discuss, uh, Pastayev turns much more melancholy and begins to almost wonder, you know, what's the point of doing all these things? Are we going to be able to overcome? Um, although this melancholy, melancholia only lasts during the night hours. And the next morning, he's fine and is headed out to do his work again. Victor at this point decides to go back to his apartment, collect some things uh, since they had to get out of Moscow so quickly. And he returns and on his way and happens to notice that in his neighbor's apartment, uh, there's a, a young woman who he doesn't know, just kind of questioning him on his way in, which he takes note of, but doesn't immediately think much of. And he goes into his, his apartment, which as he describes it, everything was as it had always been, yet also somehow unfamiliar and strange. And he felt different in himself. He was not the man he understood and was accustomed to. So after spending some time there, drinking a little bit of wine, he heads back to his lab and he's immediately back in his element. It's noted that although in every other element of his life, he's very absent-minded at home, in personal relationships, everything. It's his lab where he puts all his mental energy and he knows everything about this place. When something's even slightly off, he's familiar with that. And he meets with Anna Stepanovna and Alexander Matveyevich, who have been taking care of the uh, laboratory in his absence, although neither of them are scientists. Anna Stepanovna is only hired to take care of the lab, and Alexander Matveyevich is a janitor. He has always fought. The, the, the lab has always insisted they have scientifically trained personnel, but Victor's always fought for these two because although they don't have a scientific background, they know this place better than anyone else similar to him. So he's insisted on them. And later that day, after talking to the two of them and what's going on at the lab, he returns to his apartment and we get a little bit of a digression about kind of the paradox between the attitudes of the people who have evacuated Moscow versus the people who chose to stay and the kind of reversal of when people were evacuating, it almost seemed shameful to stay. Like, why are you staying in the city? Well, I have to take care of my mother. Well, I have to do this. Well, I can't do that. Well, I have to stay here. Initially, she seems shameful, but now this late in the war, it seems to those who've stayed that they are, in fact, the, the heroic ones. And those who have left really no longer have a claim to this city, which is interesting. Interesting digression. 
Victor spends that evening in the company of the of the woman who's staying nearby, Nina, who is her husband has come to the city to gather some things, but he's currently not staying with her, but she's working on some things before she returns. And they spend an evening together and they kind of have sort of a moment. I mean, Nina is, is not, it, it's not clear. She's kind of mysterious. It seems touched by his concern for her, but Victor is very obviously like two days away from being with his wife and is like very heavily hitting on her. Yeah. <laughs> a little uncomfortable. It was. Yeah. Incredibly awkward. Yes. Yeah, that too. There's a lot of times when I'll say something and she just like straight up pretends not to hear. <laughs> anyway, so the next morning, uh, Victor meets with Chapuzian, who we mentioned briefly last time. Chapuzian is one of Victor's teachers when he was at university who influenced him greatly. Although Chapuzian was mildly criticized for being too non-ideological and not having a particular ideological motive for pursuing his studies. And they, they actually have a debate over the nature of it and Chapuzian kind of argues that as Grossman seems to have maybe kind of tangential to Grossman's own beliefs, which is that although war is war, fascism is not reflective of the character of German people, but rather merely the worst elements of their society kind of taking over and fascism can't actually change their character. But you might think, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But that actually Victor comes in and argues against that because he says, well, that's all fine and good. But if you apply that same lens to our own perspective, our own ideology, that would mean that socialism has no power to change the soul of the people. And that's what we want, isn't it? And Chapuzian kind of laughs and claps him on the back and says, that's what I enjoy about you, Victor. Uh, you know, even though we don't agree, we have spirited debate. They're quite happy with that. And they set off. Well, they say uh, we agree on the main stuff, right? Yeah, essentially. But I like that. Yeah, it's an interesting piece. Yeah. And good then we go the to good time with the comrades. Well, speaking of good times with the comrades, we now join Nikolai Krimov, who is a commissar or a battalion commissar of an anti-tank, of an anti-tank brigade. You may recall, Krimov was Zhenya's first husband until she left him. We follow him more or less in, in the current storyline of the story when he's ordered to go to the west side of the Don, uh, which keep in mind is the Don is not far from Stalingrad, but it is outside and, and the west side is where the conflict is. I think what's meant to be portrayed in, this, in these following scenes is kind of his indomitable will. Uh, what ends up happening is they're crossing a pontoon bridge, and it's describing the process of that. A warning is called for uh, dive bombers, and everyone's getting off the bridge. They're running, with the exception of two groups of people. A, the pontoon guards, who it's noted are just like so fatalistic and so accepting of their own death that they're just making jokes about everyone else they're running as they as they go by, and you know, know that their 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 life lifespan is measured in hours. So they're they're just incredibly fatalistic while everyone takes cover, as well as Kremov, who uh, stands up and tells himself that it's the logic of the war will mean maybe he'll die if he, he goes into a foxhole, uh, but he needs to be an example. So he stands up and he walks down the bridge while everyone else is taking cover, earning him some respect from the pontoon guards, as well as others who look on at him and see him as sort of a beacon of, of what to be like. It turns out that the dive bombers are actually just storks and they get all those soldiers get yelled at by an old peasant woman. Hilarious. Um, <laughs> so they drive off, but as they drive off, Kremov's driver notes that actually he does see dive bombers in the distance heading for the bridge now. So those pontoon guards who we met briefly are probably a few minutes away from their own deaths. Less hilarious. Less hilarious. So he thinks, Kremov thinks about the, how the war will be portrayed in history. And he thinks this. Kremov looked at the wounded who had fallen by the wayside at their grim, tormented faces and wondered if these men would ever enter the pages of books. This was not a sight for those who wanted to clothe the war in fine robes. He remembered a nighttime conversation with an elderly soldier whose face he had been unable to see. They had been lying in a gully with only a great coat to cover them. 
The writers of future books had better avoid listening to conversations like that. It was all very well for Tolstoy. He wrote his great and splendid book decades after 1812, when the pain felt in every heart had faded, and only what was wise and bright remained. This feels a little bit like Grossman talking to himself. More or less. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, a fair amount of this book, but... Krimov continues on. We, we learn a little bit more about his history, which uh, previously, as a battalion commander, he had been working with relatively close to the Western Front, but actually the early German strategy, which was basically a pincer movement, was able to encircle much of the Russian army, including him, and through the next few months, he leads a ragtag group of 200 soldiers, essentially to freedom, through the breaking through the lines. And during that period, it's one of the most stressful times of its life, it's noted, but it's also one of the most important, and he feels a sense of rightness. And he becomes the moral center of even people who outrank him come to him, and they ask him everything. And it's noted that they understand that he doesn't actually know everything, but they feel a sense of completeness by having an authority to go to, and he feels like the the responsibility of it gives him a sense of life, which it's noted before the war in Moscow when he was the head of a publishing publishing house. After Zhenya has left him and his brother, his dear brother, has found employment outside of Moscow, he feels very lonely and had always pictured himself as being kind of a the head of a family commune where his brothers would be there and his nieces would be there and he'd have family to come home to, uh, but now finds himself all alone. So coming to the war has actually been probably one of the turning points for himself, much for the better. So they manage to break out and he meets some soldiers and they kind of talk about normal life and he moves on, later finding out that the soldiers, almost everyone he meets, would later be killed during a later push. In this scene, we also have uh, Krimov as he's returning to Tula, which is where he's um, outside, outside of Moscow, which is where he's positioned or supposed to, be to get new orders from at the time. I know this is in 1941 before we have the push, which would eventually lead the Wehrmacht to Stalingrad. Krimov stops at a Yasna Polyana. Yes, Napoleon, of course, was Tolstoy's estate. It's where he wrote War and Peace and Anna Karenina, as well as many other works. And he, he goes to Tolstoy's grave. And this is his experience. Krimov went to Tolstoy's grave. Damp, sticky earth. Damp, unkind air. The rustle of autumn leaves underfoot. A strange sense of heaviness. The loneliness of this little mound of earth, covered in dry maple leaves. In the living, throbbing connection between Tolstoy and all that was happening today. It was agonizing to think that in a few days, German officers might come to this grave, laughing, smoking, talking in loud voices. Suddenly, the air above him was shattered. Junkers, with an escort of Messerschmitts, were passing overhead, about to bomb Tula. A minute later, from a few miles to the north, came the dull roar of dozens of anti-aircraft guns. Then the earth trembled too, shaken by the explosion of bombs. The cream off, it seemed as if Tolstoy's dead body must have felt this trembling. And of course, in reality, yes, Napoleon, after this date, would be taken by, by the Wehrmacht forces. After this, Krimov returns to Moscow and tries to check in on people, but pretty much everyone at this point has been evacuated, and he collapses because of pneumonia and spends some number of weeks in the hospital as Moscow becomes, as he describes it, a scowling city, a soldier city, a militiaman city, for finally attending a speech given by Stalin, inducing them to resist the fascist invaders, uh, which, of course, the German attempt to take Moscow in 1941 ended in, in failure for the Wehrmacht, which was one of the early turning points in the war prior to Stalingrad. But although that was a success, the Germans would later turn to an offensive, of course, and smash through the Soviet lines and push them all the way back to Stalingrad, which is where the main bulk of our own story takes place. So, Ooh. three parts in, we're focusing on not new characters, but characters who've been very much in the background till now. And boy, are they given a lot of space for character. Yeah, and this is still part one, and we still have another episode to go on just part one alone. It's mm -hmm. pretty yes. thick part one. Very thick part one. 
I haven't been using the Dramatis Persona a lot because I've been trying to make my own charts to follow them better, but I went back and looked at it. I, I just realized that it's like five pages long. Oh my God. No, I just have the list of characters in the back that I furiously flip back and forth between to make sure I know who they are. And then yeah. I go, okay, I got it. And then I start reading and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I actually, so since we're here, um, speaking of characters, I wanted to, we've been, we've been lampshading this a lot. So let's talk about Soviet Tolstoy because Grossman, if you were to pick up any book about Grossman, you're going to see that in the front, which is going to, you're going to see a quote in the front, which compares him to Tolstoy. If you read history books, you know, at the time that Soviet Tolstoy was a sort of an archetype, which the Soviets themselves were looking for during the war to write it. And there were, and Grossman was one of two writers who were kind of elevated to that status or like competing departments were trying to put them up as their Soviet Tolstoy. So a lot of people say this, but man, you take issue with that. It's not necessarily an issue. I just thought that when people were saying that, they're like, wow, look at this prose. There's something, ah, there's something here special about it. I didn't realize he literally wrote a meaning between one of his characters and Tolstoy's estate. It seems like a much more obvious comparison having read that is all. Mm -hmm. And yeah. not to mention the fact that he deliberately cast himself in the own lineage of like russian war writing he's constantly talking about war and peace it's constantly <laughs> it's all the time yeah not only is he constantly doing that he's like taking major passages of war and peace and then distilling them into different traits that he attributes to different characters as well so there's a whole passage in war and peace where one of the protagonists is trying to kind of get into numerology and try and figure out the future of the war and just trying to do a, a lot of stuff based on numbers and there's this whole complicated mathematical scene which is supposed to be i think comical where he he, he divines that napoleon is related to 666 and napoleon is therefore the devil and this is why he's invading russia and there's all this other stuff that goes along with it and there's a passage just at the beginning of part three here on page 209 of my, my copy talking about victor who's looking at the first days of the war and the number of aircraft specifically and saying that Victor would try to divine something from these numbers to find some clue in them as to the future course of the war. And so he's deliberately taking, I think, these parts from Tolstoy. I mean, I guess I guess anybody could just try to, you know, in the early days of a war, figure out based on how many troops or planes or tanks or whatever are lost, how the future of the war would go. Completely natural. I just think it's too much of a coincidence in the way that he is kind of posturing his own writing as we're reading through that it's completely coincidental. Right. And keep in mind that as later sources note, reportedly, the only book that Grossman was able to read during these years was War and Peace. So. Yeah. yeah. So it makes sense is all I'm saying. The fact that he's called the Soviet Tolstoy makes a lot of sense in the face of the fact that they were at the time looking for a Soviet Tolstoy and probably said as much to Grossman. Yeah. <laughs> Who yeah. at the time, granted, you know, I don't think that's his reason for including this. I think he is just genuinely like obsessed with Tolstoy. And probably think, thought War and Peace was the only, and keep in mind that Stalingrad is his attempt to, it is essentially a piece of propaganda. It's his attempt to tell people who weren't there or weren't fighting what different elements of the war were like for soldiers, for civilians, etc. Or at least what it was like in Stalingrad. And probably War and Peace is the only novel to him that did that well, uh, or at least that he was aware of, and it was much of his influence. I mean, as Krimov is at Yasna Polyana, it explicitly goes into war and peace where Krimov briefly is unable to tell whether he's living a real life or if he's 
And of course, in, in War and Peace, there's a state there which is based on Tolstoy's own estate, and he begins to look at it as if it's the, the fictional world, and he pick, kind of loses the track of reality between War and Peace and the actual Yes Napoleana for that a couple pages. That was a great scene. That was fantastic. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's so well done. I mean, don't get us wrong. He's <laughs> cribbing a lot from Tolstoy, but it works really well. Yeah. There's a lot of... I mean, I want to do some weirder, more experimental stuff, too, in the future of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to get into the early 20s debate of whether the Soviet Union should even strive to have a Leo Tolstoy. Because this was this was like one of like the debates among writers was whether mm. they should be trying to produce Soviet Leo Tolstoys or whether they should be trying to produce a new kind of writer that's completely different. And the, you know, more radical people were... It did not want to replicate Leo Tolstoy, but with communism, they wanted something completely different that was much less mm -hmm. focused on the individual. And I mean, obviously, you can see which one kind of won out. It was not that vision. But there is a little there. Well, not a little bit of rewriting. There's a lot of rewriting in this book. And some of the debates even that were popular not even two decades ago are rewritten and hurled over to the fascist side, which is fascinating mm -hmm. to see. There's a, an offhand remark in the very beginning of this about, about eugenics, talking about how the Nazis are practicing this and advocating for this when there were a fair share of people in the Soviet Union advocating and discussing this in the 1920s as well. So it's just kind of interesting to see how that can kind of morph and shift right. just in not that long of a period of time. Yeah. Just a yeah, fun fact I thought I'd throw on in there. That is a fun fact. Thank you for sharing. And how quickly that, I mean, that could be shifted back and forth. I mean, keep in mind, after this novel was released, this is at the height of, this is in 1952 when we have the, the height of the, so there was an incident towards the end of Stalin's life where I forget exactly the reasoning behind this or if there was ever clear one divine, but a group of doctors, almost all of them Jew, well, I think all of them Jewish, were accused of trying to assassinate Stalin. It's led to a great deal of anti-Semitism in general or anti-Semitic behaviors that were like not just latent, but also like being acted upon. Grossman was called upon to sign a letter calling for the execution of these doctors, which he, he did and appears to have uh, regretted it for the rest of his life. But at the same time, he his book, which had been up to this point, had been given awards, actually, was suddenly being denounced as like an anti-Soviet piece of fiction. But luckily for, for Grossman. In fact, Grossman was quite lucky throughout the war, as, as, as uh, Chandler notes. In, in one case, uh, he was known for being lucky. In one case, even a grenade landed at his feet and failed to go off. But similar to that, Stalin died only a month later, meaning that within a month of his death, that his book, all the arguments of the polemics against his book being an anti-Soviet piece of literature, uh, were retracted and it was put back on shelves on the Arbat on the main street of Moscow. Well, there's um, plenty of interesting things that we already, I think, want to read that will be coming eventually um but there's just really weird yeah. instances of things that people or critics or ideologues at the time were saying this is anti-soviet we should ban this this should not be allowed and then stalin would go in and say actually i like it and then it would win a stalin's prize uh in, in like i mean <laughs> like weeks or months just very short periods of time it's really kind of crazy but fortunately for us we get to read the uh revised and updated edition of Stalingrad. Updated, right, which includes as much as they can, which, like, is shocking what, as, in, in again, this is, like, the version, I think Stalingrad went through, like, six different editions before it was finally published with all things, kind of, the kinds of things being removed. 
one of the things that I was like, I was reading it and I was like, no way he just mentioned that. There's a section where Kremov is talking to a commissar and towards the end, or to come, is talking to a general. And towards the end, the general is revealed to be Andrei Vlasov. And if you're not familiar, Andrei Vlasov was a Red Army general uh, who was captured by the Nazis during an encirclement. And while he was in a camp, uh, ended up defecting and became the leader of the anti-communist Soviet forces. And of course, once the war ended and he was recaptured by the Soviets, he was put on trial and executed for treason. And of course, as mentioned by Chandler in the, in the notes, this was removed from the actual publication of the book, but just yeah. including Vlasov at all, what an absolute, I don't even know what to call it. Bold? Brave? Stupid? Bold? Bold, certainly. I've got to imagine there is a fair bit of drafting that went in where you right. would write what you wanted to write. And, you know, probably in a lot of cases, actually, a good example of self-censorship where if you wrote this and there's evidence that he had written this and then it wasn't included, well, not everything was stricken down by the censor. You kind of know, I would yeah. venture to guess if you were a professional writer in the Writers' Union, the Soviet Union, that, you know, you're not going to be able to include these sort of things. Right, yeah. But to your point, still very bold. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I mean, we haven't even really touched on the stories here. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the characters that have introduced. Of course, we got Anna Semyonova. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but Anna Semyonova is very heavily based on Grossman's own life. That is very close to descriptions of his own mother. Anna Semyonova, very much living for her son, refusing to move on and always thinking that her son's going to take care of her. And, of course, after the war, losing contact because she's further, further west. That is, of course, one-to-one with, with Grossman's own experiences, which... You know, after her death, Grossman wrote, continued to write her letters, and at least two of them he carried around until his death uh, on his person. I, I mean, I'm not the first person to suggest this, but Anna Semyonova, in some ways, feels like an attempt to kind of come to come to grips with his own mother's passing and his own feelings of guilt over that. Like, um, I, I go back to often a lot of things that Gorchova Newberry said in our interview with her, but one of the things she she said that sticks with me is that writing for her was like an attempt to grapple with the past or rewrite your own history and that feels like a lot of Grossman's writing but very very pointedly with the character of Anna Semyonova including at one point Victor has a dream I can't remember if it's in this episode or last episode but he's got a dream about going to a house and going to his own dacha and seeing a chair with a certain number of items on it and knowing that it's her chair uh, but she's not there and he can't figure out where she is and based on a letter Grossman wrote that's exactly a, a dream that he had at some point so a lot of victor is himself i mean victor i like to mention victor himself is jewish in fact that was actually an issue for some of the publications that they wanted to change the fact that he was jewish or even remove him entirely victor but Grossman put so much of himself in there up to and including his own dream which kind of basically was the point at which grossman without actually knowing came to the conclusion that his mother had died and of course she had she'd been one of the probably among the first killed by the ansatz group and and uh bobby yar so I don't know. I don't have that much to say about her complex literary level, but that is, you know, without direct clear evidence that that's his intention, it's pretty hard not to draw those comparisons and parallels mm -hmm. when he's putting so much of his own life into her. Well, I guess we could talk a little bit about War and Peace. Sure. Let's talk about it. Lowercase War it. and Peace. Okay. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> I like it. I just felt like this was a bigger part of this third part that we did, that we just read than the first two. There was a lot about what it's like to be in a space that is simultaneously at war and where you have to also care about small domestic concerns 
that maybe seem petty in the light of the fact that you're at war. And there's just a lot of interesting characterization, I thought, that kind of goes into the whole of this part where Mm -hmm. there is some sort of philosophical narratorial remarks where he steps out of the character to just think out loud a little bit at you. And then there are some parts where I think the narration breaks for the reader, or at least it does for me, such as towards the end when one of the generals is uh, approving or upholding different sentences from the military tribunal. And when he approves them, he writes them in a child's green crayon, (laughs) which is just a really particular detail to include to illustrate this point, which is that you can't ever get fully away from domestic concerns. You know, not that crayons are a domestic concern per se, but just to kind of illustrate the way that they exist so closely in that same space is, I, I thought this was a good point from this part to take out of it. This was like one of the main parts of part three for me. Right, yeah. You know, of course, that's coming from Kremov's section. It's reflected on a lot, too, in Victor's section. Of course, when he returns to Moscow, he's returning to a city which is has very recently recovered from more or less being under siege, uh, or it is con- it's very close to the front, and he notes that people kind of are going about their daily lives and kind of has been a bit of editorializing. The narrator says, well, people can't stay in a state of tension forever. Eventually, they're just going to mm-hmm. get used to things. And the narrator writes... Their apartments bore witness to a strange blend of war and domestic life. Hand grenade fuses and cartridge magazines lay on the floor besides children's toys and women's berets and dressing gowns. So too, you know, to your point about the domestic and war coming so close together and the normalcy that came out of it were portrayed, I, th- I think, you know, most obviously in Victor's section, but to your point, I think it also is in Kremov's section as well, like uh, General Petrov signing those execution orders, or even in the same, like, it's for some orders looking up and joking, um, well, can we show, this is like an old woman, let's just show her some leniency. And then the others, like in any other context, uh, a, a general signing death sentences with a commissar would be come off as sinister, but the way Grossman writes it comes off as, like, wartime buddies, and it's strangely writing them fondly, which is weird for a scene where, like, the general signing death sentences of him like looking up and joking like oh well let's show her some leniency she's just an old woman the commissary being joking like oh i think you're getting soft in your old age it's a weird yeah like again any other context very sinister scene weirdly human the way that grossman brings her out it of like even up to like these the, the considerations of war which of course you know signing shooting soldiers for treason which is most of the orders he's signing like, it doesn't feel good, but, like, this is not a uniquely Soviet feature either. This is very much a less well, so true on the Western Front, but very I true on the Eastern Front. help you on that one, which is to say yeah. that the time this is written, I think that when somebody would have been reading this and somebody said, yeah, they were executed for treason, you would believe that they were 100% without a doubt actually a traitor. Yeah. In which case, signing that order and affirming that is not really that big of a deal because, hey, traitor during wartime, you got to do what you got to do. But uh, looking back on it, knowing what everybody kind of knows now, which is to say uh, not everybody that was executed uh, did anything wrong, it does feel a little bit different the way that he writes that. Right, yeah, like in for Kremov, for example, it's mentioned very much in passing, but he does execute people along the way when he's out in the the wilderness, when he comes across villages where the village elders are collaborators or people in the villages have become polizei, the word for police, which usually indicated someone who was becoming an enforcer of the of the, the Germans. 
there's mention that there's Grimov hears this treacherous refrain. Uh, we've seen what has been, what will be, what will be essentially, which is kind of the not exactly tied one to one, but said to be kind of the refrain of those who accept Nazi rule. Which is to say, I think the point on nature that I wanted to go to, if we can. Yes, let's do it. If let's we may. It. It's actually not that it's all unnatural. Right. Because he does compare it to nature at one point, which is interesting. There's a lot of discussion on fascism and everybody's opinions on fascism, which is generally nobody's really sympathetic in the book towards <laughs> it, except collaborators. But Grossman writes that fascism wanted to subordinate all human life to rules similar in their soulless, senseless, and cruel uniformity to those that govern dead, inanimate nature. The laying down of sediments on the seabed or the erosion of mountain ranges. And then he goes on to talk about how he wants to enslave and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that's in pretty stark contrast to the growing in the orchard and a lot of the other... I guess it's just interesting, I guess, that he equates communism with with freedom and then fascism mm -hmm. with slavery, essentially. Right. But it's not really interesting. It's kind of what you'd expect, I guess. Yeah, but I think in the context of the way he talks about nature of like the liveliness of nature being mm -hmm. kind of almost anti-fascist inherently of like yeah. of it being something that's not subject to well not subject to like strict rules subject to a bit more freedom but fascism can be compared to dead nature dead nature which is no longer changing into some nature which is just that's what it is and that's what it will always be mm -hmm. the dead parts the rot well not rot rot is always actually changing but like <laughs> sediment as he uses in the book a much better example yeah it's easier to i think write yeah. it like this afterwards uh, because this way yes. you can kind of make it seem like you're in step with nature, which is always kind of can be kind of progressing in the sort right. of way that he writes a lot of the characters' actions as if they have been fated to be this way. Yeah, um, I think that's something that might have been on Grossman's mind for a while when I was reading The Hell of Treblinka the other day. Mm -hmm. One of the, as he's going, of course, The Hell of Treblinka is a narrative about trying to put you in the shoes of the people of, of the camp of uh, Treblinka too, which was, uh, there's two camps at Treblinka, one for uh, which was like a for political prisoners, for Poles, for other nationalities, for particularly skilled Jewish tradespeople. And the second camp was for the majority, mostly it was for entirely for Jews, as well as some number of Roma people and other quote unquote, like undesirables as determined by the by the Nazis. And he's putting you in their shoes. And one of the characters who is I, I, when I was reading it, a certain amount, it's known by Chandler, not all of it's completely accurate. And there's notes in the back of the book, The Road, which correct some of the things. One of the things that I was like, yeah, this must be an exaggeration was an SS guard who was known for like picking up children and dashing them against the ground just with one hand to stupefy the parents around them into submission, which I thought was an exaggeration. Turns out, nope, he was convicted for that after the war. So yeah, that checks out. Yep. Yeah, but what Grossman goes on to write is he said like we shouldn't he basically says you know the thing about this is like that well a time this is the time when people behaved wolfishly and wolves behaved like people he said don't be angry at these beasts and he only refers to them as beasts he says you know like i'm not mad at them essentially these beasts are being beasts i'm mad at a system which brings these beasts out of their hiding places and into the public light i don't think that this isn't a one-to-one -one idea but he kind of has this in, in other works has talked about nature as just like it is what it is good or bad it is what it is but it's this in talking about fascism specifically it's the system which brings them out or these beasts out of their hiding places it's the system which makes nature more like dead nature like sediment which is wrong 
not like saying it's unnatural, but saying that it takes the worst parts of nature rather than, you know, communism in our great USSR, which is the best parts of nature, the, the trees, the birds, the, the free things which are growing, developing. Well, he has that part too. I don't have the quote in front of me, but you jog my memory where he's talking about how fascism is just kind of an inversion of what is normal. Right. Where he's talking about how it's now run by the thieves that used to be, you know, hidden in the shadow at night. And now right. it's the, the thieves that are reaping the rewards of everything. Yeah. So it seems like a, yeah, a consistent theme of, mm-hmm. of fascism, not as an unnatural force, but as a, a force which is the, represents the worst parts of the world. Like what he says at the, hell of, at the end of the Hell of Treblinka, it's not like, okay, we've, it, it is a bit triumphant. Like we, we stopped this. We put, we put a stop to the, the Red Army, stopped the Wehrmacht, and he calls it the Holy Red Army. At this, of course, later in his life, he'd, he'd have come around to much different opinions regarding the Soviet Union. But at this time, you know, it's probably not hard to understand how someone whose his own family had been killed in the, the Shoah by bullets, how he would look upon the Red Army favorably for stopping the, the Nazi war machine. But in the end, he, he's very, it's not, and I think this was, it's a note that that was actually removed in, in the few places that that piece was published. And he says that the thing about fascism is not that we've defeated it. The thing is that it's been stopped, but also it's been easier than ever to, to realize that how easily fascism can be carried out, and specifically fascism of, of, of genocide. And much of his work on Treblinka is how easy it is to do that, essentially. You can have a couple engineers put together. He said, based on his estimates, you could have a couple engineers put together enough gas chambers to kill the whole world in a few months. And now fascism knows it can do that. It's a bit more triumphant here, right? Because that now they're years onward, whereas The Hell of Treblinka is written in 1944, very much in the middle of, not in the middle of, towards the end of the war, but still where the Wehrmacht is still a viable fighting force, more or less. But still, that's this element of fascism as something that's still kind of alive. And although it, that's, that's like not, not wrong, but just represented the worst parts, like the thief in the night, those that allow the beasts out of their, of their hiding places, uh, and something that's still a present threat is still, I would say, although not as obviously as in the Hill of Treblinka, still present in, in Stalingrad to a certain degree. I would like to discuss the part where Kremov is on the bridge and they think they're being attacked and everybody just completely disperses and, you know, kind of every person for themselves. And he talks about how, well, he does a couple of things. He talks about how that's mm. bad, how that should not happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. Later as he's, you know, as he's leading his, you know, group of people that have been encircled as he's leading his his troops out of out of there the whole point is that they are only able to do it because they stick together and they don't try and go one by one across the front and so this was a this is a good passage i thought it was the socialist realism passage out of everything we've we've read when kramov describes his task as political commissar to awaken other higher feelings in these men to help them understand that they were part of a whole of a nation and that's a really key part to the last half of what we read today was trying to understand what makes the Soviet Union feel unified and mm. what makes them sort of what what wins wars, essentially, I think, is that that sense of unity, at least for now. And that's a really interesting thing to be written in this book, which is all about individuals. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. It's it's interesting to see how Grossman kind of goes between this intense granular look at people and then advocate for this as well. 
Right. That they're not mutually exclusive, I guess. Yeah, it does feel like an attention throughout a lot of his work where he, that's, like you say, very much what he's advocating. And Krimov feels at his peak. He feels at his best when they're encircled and he is the one holding mm-hmm. them all together and they're operating as a singular mass. But at the same time, Krimov has to be a man on his own. He's the only one besides the pontoon guards. Certainly the pontoon guards, even though they know they're about to die, but they're not actively suicidal. So they're still laying down <laughs> trying to avoid being shot whereas Kremov is just standing up and walks over and crouches down by them and hands them both cigarettes and said oh let me get you guys a light (laughs) (laughs) which you know he's reflecting on the need for unity but i think it also says i don't have this written down he's thinking this as he's walking down there's this whole section on the need for unity um and then it kind of ends on but you know Kremov couldn't always do this duty (laughs) right right. essentially being like right now it's a lost cause because i mean in the face of you know stupid dive bombers yeah, people can take over. That's fine. <laughs> or, of course, in the very end, when like a peasant woman, like a peasant woman is the first one to realize it, one of the many uh, civilians there, and begins cursing out the army and says, you're all a bunch of cowards. How could you hide from birds? Uh, and everyone gets up and they start laughing. And it's this weird tension between the very seriousness of we need to be together on this and also the kind of the funny moments of like being cursed out by a peasant woman because you're hiding from a stork. <laughs> Following on that immediately. Christman never feels entirely monological there always feels like every character of course has their own monologic but that goes against other characters in completely reasonable ways and at the same time that you know other characters will take the piss out of them and they'll still find it funny which i adore as a as a character writing piece i just think it's very realistic in a lot of ways not in like Mm -hmm. a capital r genre of realism just it's very attainable i I don't know if that's the right word or what exactly i'm Mm -hmm. getting at it's just that when you picture what you see socialist realism as it's just a lot of archetypes of people or people who are really clearly villains and it doesn't always leave room for nuance at least that's what i think the stereotype of it is and Mm -hmm. i think here is the acknowledgement of yeah this would be great if we just you know came together as one big army and just you know decided all right now we're gonna go steamroll the nazis but that's not the way that it works of course eventually they do and that's great but it's very difficult to make everybody feel as if they're part of something it's very difficult to mobilize a whole nation and even though that's one of the enormous questions of this time emerges as how do you mobilize an entire country to do something uh, or to believe in something or whatever you want them to do as a government or whatever Grossman, I feel like, is kind of saying is really quite difficult. I mean, you really can't eliminate these, a lot of these individual factors. Yeah. That's what I think. No, I think, I think that's, that's about right. That does feel like a, an accurate, probably, summary of the drives which lead him to the, I would say, superficially contrasting elements of the book, which I think really don't have, aren't actually at odds at all when you understand Grossman's own perception right. on, of things and his own experiences, and how much of this book really feels like him just writing things that he saw personally. One of the things that has been on my mind uh, for since I think I mentioned this last time, this kind of paper, which is about, again, not about Stalingrad, but it was about this person writing about like the way Call of Duty impacts cultural perception of war. Uh, one of the notes they, they write is how video games often take out civilians. Video games about war often take out civilians. Now, this may just be a graphical limitation. And nowadays, that's a little bit more present. But still, you have battlegrounds without people. You've got places where living once happened, where that's entirely absent. You don't see civilians absent in like this video games mall. It's just a broken down mall. And Grossman almost seems to reject that entirely where so much of this book is about 
Um, and not that we spend a lot of time on it because it's it's very much in passing uh, on trains, walking, seeing caravans of refugees trying to make their own way, seeing them on trains, seeing all individual lives, people who are apparently doing well, who are doing badly, who are begging for tickets and everyone averts their eyes because they don't have anything to give this woman who needs tickets to get to some place. It feels like Rose been giving room to all these images and him trying to give them a space to still be present in some way. I know I've talked about the Hell Triple Link a lot this episode, but I just read it yesterday, so it's very present in my mind. The final tribute, the epigraph he gives to Epitaph. Uh, the epigraph he gives the people of Treblinka, who much of the, the story is talking about the process of dehumanization from them, the epigraph he gives them is that all of them, they went to their deaths, whether they went as part of the machine or whether they went fighting or whether they were went out some other way. The epigraph he gives them is that they died as, as human beings, which was not true. It's not, it's not something he extends to the SS guards who were only beasts in that story. And that's the most important thing that at the end, you know, of course, the crime perhaps as he calls it, maybe the greatest crime that's ever taken place, the worst thing, the more humans died in this in this one camp than has the sea has swallowed since the beginning of time, which is debatable because his math is actually wrong in, in that, as, as, Grossman, as historians have noted, but that's beside the point. They die as human beings, which feels like the way he treats everyone is that these feel like stories where he's trying to restore some humanity, some individuals to the war, even though a lot of it's reflecting how much people kind of lose a sense of humanity, especially among the refugees who have nothing left, how they seem to be lost and dazed. It's an attempt to return humanity, although sure. it's not one that's victorious returning. It's a, it is what it is. It's portrayal of what he saw, I think. Yeah. It's a somber note to end on. Yeah. I mean, probably going to get that a lot throughout started. this series. I'm going to create we're a series three that's going to make feel so bad <laughs> by the time we're done. <laughs> And then there's Life and Fate, which is the sequel to this book, which is more reflection on the war, more more war and peace than I think Grossman thought he could. War and, and peace could be written peace, about World War so. II. <laughs> and then there's War and Peace too. So which Grossman didn't write, but we no. still have to read on the podcast. So yeah, we'll get there. We'll get, maybe after listening or reading Stalingrad, you'll uh, you'll see some more interesting things in War and Peace. A dialogue, like we talk so often about it, about so many of our works, which is pieces works in dialogue with each other check out our Not upcoming war and pieces in dialogue with stalingrad 50 parter on war and peace <laughs> <laughs> i'm super excited for this just to be a war and peace podcast uh -huh. pretty soon pretty, pretty soon. soon well i mean within the next 10 parts and then some breaks sure, to sure. do some things that our patrons request mm -hmm. because um you know we, we, we've made a deal for our patrons and of course all of our listeners support us through the weird stuff we do, and then we come back and say, hey, we know we just did a 10-parter on a book no one asked for. Let's talk about some stuff you want to talk about for a little while. And then nobody responds to me, and then as punishment, they have to listen to another 10-parter. So you learn your lesson, all right? You better learn. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, that's, sorry, the side line. So I'm giving you the positive side. Matt's giving you the threat, where if you don't give us recommendations, we'll do this again. Yeah, we're doing good podcast host, bad podcast host. <laughs> yes precisely well uh, i think that's probably about as much as we're going to cover today so matt i have to ask you now that we've come to this point now that we've been talking about war and the holocaust for a straight hour mm -hmm. how drunk are you well considering i wasn't drinking i'm not drunk but i do feel mellow yeah that's right i forgot you're drinking espresso until the very moment that i said yeah, that it's sentence. Okay. how are you how are you feeling how are you doing <laughs> How's it going? Um, I'm, I'm, I've got a three. I had I had two ciders. Okay. So right. 
very mild. Yeah, it's a mild, mild episode, three. but it's a good episode. I'm really liking the series. It's a good a lot. episode. Yeah, I've been not that I like. I don't enjoy books. I always do enjoy reading, but this one has been. And I said this last episode too. It, it brings me a sense of energy. And as you joke, I feel like every day I just want to read more Grossman. I've been trying to collect more books. The other week I went to a bookstore and I saw a bunch of his books, and I decided not to get them because I've got self control. And I went back a couple days later, and some of them were gone. And I lost all self control, and I was like, "No, I must have them all." <laughs> I've already was it in quiet flows the river whatever mm-hmm. it is that's already slipped out of my grasp i won't let any others yeah 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 our, well our spinoff podcast we're just gonna become the grossman guys <laughs> i love it the, what, what's what's the state of being no let's be a religious podcast genuflecting grossman yeah there you go when you become a when you become a serbian orthodox mm-hmm. priest mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah i'll get it right on that which you know not that Grossman wasn't Serbian Orthodox, but he did. He doesn't like to use a lot of biblical imagery, so that's like close enough, that's I think. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all we've got for today. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, next week, we're going to be continuing on with part four of our 10 part series on Stalingrad. And before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons Haley, Blake, Sharon, Maya, Pack Rob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Shirley, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel again, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free in grad school. Uh, Matt keeps telling me does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy. You can also join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.